Hi, my name is John Smart. Uh, welcome to the next episode of the Sooner Safer Happier podcast. And uh, this is in this podcast, we are speaking to people, practitioners and leaders who are leading on improving ways of working at large companies. And I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Manterfield at ABSA. Hi, Nick. John, hello, how are you? It's a real pleasure to be here this afternoon. I'm good, thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for coming along and having a chat and sharing your, your learnings and your insights. Um, so first of all, Nick, would you would you like to just introduce yourself? Um, you know, tell us a bit about your role and your background. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Nick Manterfield, um, based in South Africa, been here for about 15 years, as John said. Um, I work for a, a a full service financial services company called Absa, based in Johannesburg. Um, you know, we have a presence in about 15 countries across Africa. We have rep offices in the US and the UK. So. Um, you know, and, and I guess we do like full full service banking all the way down from, you know, sort of retail individual banking through business, SME business, all the way up to corporate investment banking, um, you know, which is, I guess, where I've spent most of my career and certainly my time working at ABSA. Um, you know, I've been at ABSA about uh, 15 and a half years now, I think, uh, in various roles, always in the corporate investment bank. Um, you know, uh, first started in sort of more in the trading space, working with FX technology, um, you know, rolled out some new trading systems into our African businesses, um, and then and then kind of sort of moved more across to the corporate side of the bank. So yeah, I currently look after um, technology for the corporate bank, which actually includes risk and finance technology, and actually look after payments technology for the group as well, which kind of is a. In fact, both are kind of sort of pan-African. So we run, you know, we run a single technology stack across, you know, across all our countries for for corporate investment banking and for payments. So. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my background and what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, yeah, it's lots of fun. Great, nice one. Uh, and in terms of ways of working, Nick, in terms of agile, lean, waterfall, you know, what's your over the course of your career? What's your uh, experiences with with different ways of working? John, I think we've had you know, we've had exposure to probably every flavor um, I can imagine over my career. I mean, I guess I started work. You know, started work. Um, you know, actually in London and a bank in London before I moved to South Africa. You know, the, I guess ways of work were quite different then. So I had plenty of exposure to um, plenty of exposure to sort of waterfall, more traditional ways of work. And I think, you know, I think it's and, it, and I think it's taken quite a long time for you know banks um, and big sort of regulated organisations to really um, you know begin to think about transforming their ways of work. So you know, and I think we all know that it's happened. You know, like probably more around the technology teams as we brought people in from other industries, you know, Scrum is adopted and we have kind of agility in the middle around the development cycle, but not end to end. And I think that's, you know, that's really where, you know, I'm trying to, trying to, trying to focus now is really look at that end to end agility. Um, you know, I think we've tried, we've tried, we've tried lots of models. I mean, I think our introduction to sort of agile at scale, we did, we did touch safe briefly six or seven years ago. And we took bits that we thought made sense for us at the time. You know, many teams still do PI planning, really nice way for, you know, technology and business to connect on a quarterly basis and talk about what's important. Some teams don't do it. They feel like they're really clear about what they've got to get done and they don't feel the need of spending three days talking about it. They just want to get on with the work and that's also fine. Um, you know, we've experimented with the Spotify model very briefly. It didn't go well. We dropped it in. It was abandoned very, very quickly. Um, you know, I've had some teams pull things from, um, 
you know, the base camp stuff, actually, there's some really nice stuff in there. So some teams have taken things like shaping from base camp, you know, um, where you take sort of, you know, a sort of more a more senior team a quarter ahead and you try and shape work to a certain degree before it kind of feeds into the next cycle. So, you know, we've experimented with shaping and I really like hill charts. I don't know if you've ever seen hill charts in any of the base camp stuff, but I just love the way they represent where work is in such a simple visual way. So I think we've experimented, um, you know, we've experimented a lot. I would say the last couple of years, um, you know, all our work is, is, or most of our work is focused around really the Kanban models. I mean, I think, I think we've landed there over many, many iterations just because the, the, the method feels very evolutionary. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, all our teams are at different levels and at different stages and, 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 and you know, the, the philosophy with the Kanban stuff is just, you know, start from where you are and try and improve something. What's, what's slowing you down, introduce a change, see what happens, measure what happens, you know, and, and start to make changes up the curve. So, yeah, I mean, we're kind of, we're probably spending more of our focus around Kanban, you know, starting to look at the Kanban maturity model that David Anderson's developed, trying to get that working at scale across different value streams, trying to figure out how we report up, you know, make, make information that's in CFDs, you know, scatter charts, um, you know, make, make sense at scale across teams. And um, so, yeah, lot, lots of lots of different things that we've experimented with. And it's been a real, a real journey. I love the fact that you've you've kind of ended up gravitating to the principles of the Kanban method, as in uh, pursue evolutionary improvement, honor the current roles and responsibilities and pursue evolutionary improvement, uh, because I guess that's going at the pace of unlearning, that's going at the pace of change um uh, with 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 the right incentives in place um and i think then my, my my reflection is as well you then get i think you get tell me tell me if you're saying this nick i think you get more internal ownership in people because people feel like they're driving the change yeah i couldn't agree more you know i think i think these these models and you know i'm i'm i'll say i'm a little bit wary of the scale agile framework although we used us we used it six or seven years ago and there were really good things in there and it's a really good um you know body of knowledge to be able to look at but um you know just installing a way of work i think you know like like can can lead to some of the side effects that you're highlighting when you, where you don't get the level of ownership and you know i think it's so important for teams to um, grow and mature in a way and at a pace that works for them, given where they are, um, and, and either, both in ways of working and with their technology. Um, because um, you know, if you don't do that, then then and then the adoption is you know is I think is is not at the same level. And, and people are just in different places at different times. You know, when you're building something, you know, I don't know, you might need to organize around microservices, and then it matures and things come together and you change and you organize around features that cut across microservices or something like that. And each team is on their own journey. And I think that, you know, the Kanban framework really, um, you know, allows that, but also, you know, there is a maturity model and those need to be treated with caution. But I feel like KMM stuff is a bit different, but, you know, there's a path to growth. And, you know, the other thing I really love about the Kanban approach is that it feels like there's, um, just real science and data that's telling you if you're improving or not. You know, I mean, I, for me, that was something that I I um, scratched my head around quite a lot. You know, a few years ago, prevalent methodology was Scrum. You know, everyone's talking story points, velocity. It feels a little bit abstract. And the thing that 
the thing that I was always asking, well, this is this is great, but but how do we know we're getting better? It didn't feel like more story points or higher velocity was necessarily an improvement of us getting better. And it felt like, you know, a small cycle in the end to end value chain. And that's where I think that's what, you know, it's really changed with Kanban that we're looking at end to end cycle time and lead time. We're looking at throughput and there's real science behind it. So we've, you know, we've plugged a, we've plugged a, a tool called um, Nave um, that, that we that we found into our into our workflow tools, Jira and Azure DevOps, and you know it, it pulls out a lot of data, draws a lot of charts, and we get um, scatter charts, we get CFD charts, and all you know, many many of the teams are now using that, and you know it feels like there's real measurable improvement, um, you know, coming out now, and, and yeah, it feels like we're on a good journey with that one, and we found some great people to work with as well. So I'd love to come back to that topic around data visualizing data because it, it is the feedback loop it's obviously yeah, critical um and and before we come back to that nick what are your top five learnings so if you were to if you were at your your like elevator pitch um you know after your career to date and all of your learnings around how pe how we do what we do what what would you say are your top five learnings yeah, John. I mean, there's a there's a lot in there. Let me try and let me try and distill them. Um, you know, I've talked about the first one a little bit, and I think it's so important to allow the shape of your teams and your on your organisation um, to change and adapt at a pace that makes sense. You know, to where they are right now. So they'll they'll change based on where they are in their ways of working, where on their tech, their technology maturity is that things are going to adapt at a different pace. So trying to just say, cool, everyone looks like this next week, or everyone looks like this, in my experience, really doesn't doesn't work well. And and, and for me, this this process of, I mean, it's really a process of learning, right? It's, it's creating that process of learning individually in all the teams is the only real way that you actually start to mature and start to learn. This is what, for me, this is what agile maturity, agile transformation, digital transformation is, is that all the teams, you know, individually adapt and learn what this is about. And you can't achieve that, um, you know, with, with I, I don't believe by installing a framework and just renaming a load of roles, it doesn't work. You don't go through that learning cycle, it's lost. So I think that's the first point. Um, I think there's a second, there's a second learning, which, which has been quite profound for me over the last few years. And, and again, it was really inspired probably by reading Mick's book on, you know, on, on project to product. Um, but, but we've made that shift, you know, I feel, you know, we've, we, we've moved from talking about projects that, you know, start and start in January and end in December, and we disband all the team and all the funding's taken away. And then we try and restart everything in Jan in you know, the following January, we've moved away from that. And we're talking about, um, we talk about products, which really exist inside value streams. So we think of our business in terms of core value streams and the corporate man banking might be cash management trade finance, maybe FX, we've obviously got the trading pieces and the investment bank. And inside those value streams, we have products and they're long lived. We invest in them every year. Um, and then, you know, and then I guess underpinning products, you know, we have a core set of platforms that cut across products. So that's also part of our, our model. So, you know, Mix talks about project to product. For me, it's about project to product and platforms. And these platforms are so important to help us make our, our, our products go faster. You know, and, and I think we, that's a big shift for us. And, and for me, you know, we're much more efficient as an organization, um, you know, having made that shift. And we can maybe come back to, to talk about that a little bit more. So, you know, that's probably the second one. And I think when you make that shift as well, John, 
you've, you've got, you, you have to shift from talking about outputs to talking about outcomes as well. Because, you know, when you stop measuring Gantt charts, it's like, well, what are you looking at? You have to start looking at the outcomes if you're not measuring projects anymore. So, um, you know, so that's, that's, that's a key part of the transition. Um, you know, I think I talked about platforms there, and I think generally many organizations possibly don't invest enough in platforms. Um, you know, we, you know, that, I mean, that would probably be a third thing for me is, you know, like, like invest a lot in your platforms to help you build your products more quickly. Um, and sometimes it can feel like a little bit slow down to go faster, but I think the benefit in the long term, um, you know, is really there. If, if you get a really, really strong team and really think about how you build a platform that's going to accelerate your change and your development. Um, and there's maybe a sub lesson in here about, you know, autonomy and, you know, too much autonomy, maybe being the enemy of speed. I'm a, you know, I'm a big believer in giving people, you know, autonomy in their work, but, you know, sometimes if you go too wide when you're trying to move at speed, it can actually slow you down uh, and, and create a mess. So, um, yeah, that's probably the third part. Um, the fourth part I've touched on a little bit and about, you know, the stuff, you know, I, I really discovered when I, when I sort of picked up Dan Vacanti's book on, um, you know, a, 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 agile metrics for predictability. And, you know, I think, I think if you start to understand the science around measuring the flow of work, and there's, there's a lot of it, and really get into that and try and get your teams and your organization to understand it. I think you're going to see real improvements in flow of value, flow of work through your organization, you know, and also predictability. I mean, one of the things that almost I think every organization I've worked in or talked to struggles with is the business feel that technology work is, you know, not predictable and we always overcommit and under deliver. And, you know, for me, Trying to, trying to build stable systems of work that don't have high variability, you know, allows you to start to become more predictable. And, you know, for me, the holy grail, and I don't, we're not doing it right now, is be able to use Monte Carlo simulations or something like that to, you know, to try to increase the predictability of our delivery. Um, and then, yeah, I think the, la the last one, and, and it's probably really about, um, through any major, major transformation, it could be a technology transformation, it could be a ways of work transformation, these things take years and years and years in big organizations, particularly banks. They're not things that are done in six or 12 months. And, you know, I think, I think there's, there's real value in trying to keep consistent and stable leadership through those sort of transformations. Um, you know, I think you see many, many organizations that will start something and then you get new leadership come in. They have different views of the world, different ideas. And, you know, it really, really slows it down. And to try to get something, whether it's a platform or a system or a thing that you're building or a way of work to the point where the thing is bigger than the people who kind of started it and it, and it has momentum and life of its own so that it can survive, I think is really important. But you need, you know, t technology and business support consistently behind those things to drive big, big changes through like that as well. Um, so that's probably the, probably the last observation or learning that I've got spoken with with true experience and uh by the sounds of it learning the hard way that's how that sounds uh, that's a very I, I love that i love that set of five if they're there uh, I, I like the breadth that you're covering there nick um and there are i have so many questions um <laughs> we we could talk we could talk for hours um uh so i'm going to come back i'm going to come we're going to come back to some of those some of your top Ooh. learnings there um the last one in particular really resonates about the fact that this takes this is measured in years that really resonates yeah. 
And this is because this is this is human behaviour change. That's why this is measured in years. And and you know, I'm, I'm sure we've we've all seen lots of instances where, as you said, new leaders, old leaders leave, new leaders come in, and you've made you know you've got three years worth of progress, and that's all goes backwards in six months. Absolutely. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't take it doesn't take a lot for the antibodies to start to multiply you know mm. as soon as as soon as the, like the doors open a little bit and there's a glimmer of light people can put their foot through the door and you know i think i think if you've got you know really strong top level leadership or, 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 or senior leadership behind what you're doing that can carry that through it's so important to the success of it because otherwise yeah things just lose momentum and i think I think you, you can point to so many organs. I mean, fortunately, I think we've been reasonably fortunate that we've had reasonable support behind what we're doing. I mean, I've certainly been there through a big part of this transformation from a technology perspective. And I think in our in our business, we've had really, really fantastic support. So yes, people have left and you know we've had new faces come in, but there's been a core of people who've really believed in what we're trying to build and you know, also in transforming our ways of work. And I think if we hadn't have had that, we really would have stumbled. And you, know, you can see it and you, you can see it in other organizations. You can see it in competitors where things change and, you know, they write off, you know, like 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 tens of millions of pounds of investment because, you know, um, you know, someone else thinks there's another way to do it. Um, and it's waste. Yeah. It's huge waste. It's interesting. As you were talking there, I was what was going through my mind is the Rebel Alliance. You know, if you yeah. even if you have a change of senior leadership, if there are enough, if there are the resistance, if there are enough people who who are fully aware that yeah. this is a better way of working that is more engaging and leads to more value more quickly, it will carry on, even if it goes a bit underground. You you kind of have the rebel alliance, the resistance. In terms of your context, Nick, um, yeah. could you say a little bit about your your context and and the why, you know, so uh, you know, a bit about ABSA, maybe a bit about the, yeah, um, any any kind of starting point. Um, I know you've been working on ways of working for a while now, but you know, from a, from a, an organisational archaeology perspective, what did things used to be like, and what's the reason for change? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a really interesting um, history to this organisation, and I think. You know, maybe, maybe, I mean, I'll, I probably won't go back as far as long as I've been there. But I think if I go back maybe six or seven years, and, and I would say that was probably what lit the fire for the changes is, you know, we, like I said, Barclays, um, Barclays Group, an organization you know well, <laughs> John, you know, used to be a majority shareholder in ABSA. And, you know, they decided they wanted to, you know, sell sell their business interests in Africa a few years ago and, and sell Barclays Africa. And, um, I can't remember the exact date. It was probably five or six years ago. And this this really kicked off an enormous program of work inside the bank um, that, that you know uh, I was working in. And, and it was really you know it was a huge corporate divestment. And particularly you know the, the part of the bank that I was working in, the corporate investment bank, was um, you know heavily constructed on top of Barclays Global assets. You know, so we'd used. You know, technology that had been developed in Barclays globally to kind of bootstrap and grow our business and shared IP. And we had to unwind all of this and actually, you know, really rebuild a lot of stuff from scratch. So, um, you know, we had the opportunity to to really start again with a lot of stuff, reimagine, you know, how we build our technology, how we build our customer facing value props. 
you know, there was, it wasn't just technology, there was branding and all that sort of stuff. But what it did is it created this huge sense of urgency and focus across the organization for like a period of about three years. It was almost, there was almost nothing else that we talked about. And, you know, it was, it was absolutely, it was, it was probably the biggest technology transformation program in the world at the time, I would believe. And I think as an organization, you know, we, we, we executed extremely well because there was just this, this, this huge focus. Um, And, and I think that, that was really the, the springboard for probably where we are today was that, you know, that, that, you know, that, that intense focus around separating from Barclays. And what was, what I was thinking about earlier, what was really interesting about this work is it's actually an enormous waterfall project because we had a drop dead date. We had like, I can't remember what the date was, by you know, the end of this year or this date in this month on this year, we're pulling the plug out and we're not part of Barclays anymore. So you know, we had this absolutely enormous, like multi-year waterfall project. And you had all these teams inside trying to like run agile and do agile delivery inside this huge, waterfall project but you know somehow somehow we managed to you know we managed to execute it i think we executed it really really well um you know and i think and i think that was really the springboard for kind of the next what i would call the next the next phase of change um which you know i think was probably catalyzed by maybe a little bit of restructure where we moved our business facing technology teams closer to the businesses. So we almost federated our technology model um, soon after that. And really the teams that were business facing, working on customer facing product moved into the business areas. Um, you know, we use the term embedded technology in our organization. There's obviously still, you know, teams in the center that look after, um, you know, a- assets that don't make sense to federate out, but certainly the stuff that's, that's facing the businesses, um, you know, got more closely aligned with the businesses. Um, and I think that, you know, at that point it was, you know, we had this enormous focus, like, like how, how do we kind of keep the energy, keep the focus going on what we're doing? And those are some of the questions that we were asking ourselves, you know, and I think that was when, you know, we started to discover, um, you know, like OKRs and, and thinking about outcomes, you know, and I think it was really that it was that focus element because we've been so focused on one particular outcome. This program have ended and we were like, how do we maintain that level of focus in what we're doing? And I think it was probably around the similar time that John Doe released, you know, Measure What Matters and a few people read it. And, you know, it felt like there was something there around, you know, around creating focus. And, and you know, I would say that was probably what started the you know, the next phase of our transformation I'm talking about in the area that I was working in, which was, the, which was the corporate investment bank, where we started to talk more about outcomes over outputs. Um, you know, we started working with OKRs at various levels of the organization, um, you know, and in parallel, then that started, um, you know, to create more focus. It started to force um, maybe different prioritization conversations. Um, you know, and I think that also kick-started the um, the project to product transformation at the same time as well, because it felt like those things almost go hand in hand. That if you're talking about, you know, outcomes, um, you know, business outcomes particularly, like it, it's kind of weird talking about projects and outputs. You need a different way of really measuring progress in terms of real business outcomes. So, you know, I think that probably yeah kickstarted the next phase. And you know, and I think we're still we're still working with that. We're still we're still working with those constructs now, John. Yeah, yeah, and um, so then, in, so then, in terms of in terms of maintaining the incentive 
you know, so you had the there was the the the, the divestment, the Barclays divestment, ABSA, but you know, back again to standing standing as a as a bank as ABSA. Um, so yeah, so how how was was OKRs the way that you maintained the incentive to keep on improving? Was is there like a a met, like a top level OKR which is improve how you do what you do? Um, what's the what's the incentive for people to you know go through fear, maybe fail, in order to improve? Yeah, look, I think I think there's it's an evolving framework, and I think there's a few things that we you know that we we look at and measure. Certainly within the corporate investment bank, there are a set of outcomes or OKRs that are we do um, measure and track at sort of an exco level that represent our whole our whole business and. You know, those are discussed and, and curated at Exco and, and are looked at in various sort of operating committees. So I think, you know, that is there. And I think that is the, you know, that is the basis for, um, you know, the value question, obviously, you know, like, are we, are we doing the right thing? Are we chasing the right things? And, you know, obviously, they also align to key pillars of the strategy. So they have to work with the strategy. So we have our strategic objectives and the group strategy and the strategy. And then, you know, the OKRs are, um, what are we really focusing on to execute on that strategy and how are we doing it? You know, how are we doing at it? So trying to measure those key results to tell us, are we moving in the right direction towards our strategy? So, you know, that, that's an important pillar of it. Um, you know, and I think the, you know, the, like the flow metrics and the stuff that I've talked about flow is really the other piece of kind of, are we getting better at our ways of work? You know, those are the, really the two, two of the big pillars. And that really talks to the, you know, the sooner, part of it in, you know, in, in your book and, um, you know, really, really, really measuring how teams are progressing, trying to roll that up at scale. Um, you know, and I think, and I think there's the big cultural change, obviously, which I think, um, you know, with this way of working is that there has to be like a cultural shift in, in leadership to be able to push decision-making down into teams. I think that's, I think that's probably one of the hardest transitions that big organizations have got to make is, is you know it, it's for leadership to say this is where we're going this is how we're going to measure it but actually you go and figure out how we're going to get there and um you know and do the work in the teams and you know and i think that you know that's always hard and i think it, it sort of matures at different speeds in different areas and the varying levels of success but that really is the is the transition and the shift that we're trying to make is to is to look at look at those outcomes and allow you know and allow teams to do it and we've had some you know, we've had some, you know, really, really great stories around that. And then, yeah, I mean, I guess the other pillar is sort of team happiness. Um, you know, we, we do have some measures of that that we look at for team happiness as well. And, you know, we've got a, we've got a great team of coaches, um, you know, that are working with us in the organization as well, particularly on the flow stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's kind of that's kind of where we are now. And, and you know, we'll continue to, to look at how we can improve it and mature it going forward. You mentioned leaders and helping leaders on the journey allowing teams to evolve allowing teams to learn so your your number your very first lesson learned was allowing teams to yeah. evolve and not being not being too prescriptive however minimal viable guardrails there are some things that are not negotiable to the other thing that you said nick which is you, the risk of too much autonomy so yeah. minimal viable like a wide road with high curbs minimal viable guardrails Allowing teams to yeah. evolve their ways of working within those constraints, mm -hmm. and then and then you mentioned leaders and leadership. I'm interested. Can you can you talk a little bit about what what you're doing or what you're seeing around 
lead leaders and and that could be that's leaders at all levels in all roles so it doesn't need to be people management it could be an individual contributor um the you know leadership is in my opinion it's the biggest enabler or it's the biggest constraint so yeah. i'm interested what yeah what are you doing on the topic of leaders and helping leaders to change behaviors from command and control dictatorial to more emergent empowering servant leadership yeah absolutely i mean look i think i think at the, at uh, you probably need different approaches at, at you know at different levels. So I think you know really right at the top and at sort of business unit X goes. You know we try and we, it's really a process of education, right? So we you know we try and make them understand different ways of working. We get people like yourself in, right, to talk to them about actually you know this is what we've done here. This is why these are the results that you can see. And you know when we talk about change as well. Um, you know, at a top level, you know, we start to use a different language. We're using the language of, you know, outcomes. You know, we're trying to show improvements in flow. We take, um, you know, we take teams that are doing this really, really well and, you know, showcase them in sort of, you know, leadership sessions and showcase the change. And, you know, I think it's a gradual process of people, um, you know, I guess rewiring their minds about how you really deliver the change and it starts to change the language and you know keep saying things and then you hear people repeating them back to you eventually um so i think you know at a top level i think you know we've also done quite a lot of um you know some training and i was you know it was interesting um you know when we when we started playing with safe you know with like i was for some reason i was quite against like doing lots of formal safe training it just didn't feel right it didn't seem to make sense to me and you know there's maybe because you know there were pieces of the framework that we wanted to use but we have been doing uh, quite a lot of kanban training you know with with leadership and teams so product leadership technical leadership um you know change leadership um so we've done quite a lot of formal um you know what we call kmp training and i think across the areas and we try to get we try to get you know, obviously get teams in together rather than sending all the technology people or the product people get the whole whole team in together and 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 do kanban certification kmp1 kmp2 um do the training i think that's really starting to you know to shift the mindset at the next level down below the exco and i and i've seen i've seen i've seen those penny dropping moments and in fact i had them myself you know the, when i first read Dan Vacanti's book, and I started looking at these charts and reading what's in there. I was like, okay, no, this makes sense. There's something here. And then I, you know, I, I ended up just like, I don't know, reaching out to contacts I had in the industry. And I said, you know, do you, do you know anyone who really gets this stuff, gets this, gets this Kanban and, and flow and, you know, me measuring that. And, you know, someone connected me with a, a chap who's still working with us now is doing a great job. And, you know, I got a bunch of people, um, a lot of them were my team and a few other people in a room and we played that that Kanban board game. And, you know, I think just those just people really start to realize very, very quickly that trying to shove more work into the system is just counterproductive, that you can measure this stuff, um, that, you know, that there are people who are blocking things and you can see them so clearly when you think about it like this, that everything being an expedite just doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And there were so many penny dropping moments. And for me, you know, I, I started to, you know, you, obviously you light the fire in one place, you know, and then you see it take and not everyone, not everyone buys it at the beginning. Some people are skeptical and others really like love it and adopt it and you keep feeding them and then you light the fire somewhere else and then you light the fire somewhere else. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a very difficult fire to get burning because it was just, it made so much sense. And, you know, I think the other, the other thing is with, with what, 
um, we're learning through these processes is actually like the teams, they want tools and mechanisms to say, stop overburning us, stop pushing more work into the pipe. It's making us go more slowly. Like intuitively, I think they knew that. And there's so much work in progress that we're not moving forward. But actually having the tools and the language to be able to go back to uh, well, prioritization forums, whatever it is, to businesses and say, look, if we do this, it goes quicker. Like, I think, you know, they really, really embraced that and they understood why and they could see it working. So, you know, we've, we've trained quite a lot of people, um, you know, in, in Kanban. And I think, you know, for us, this is this is this feels like the right the right path at the moment and, and is working well. I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase Dan North. It, it's like switching the light on in the room and you see the tiger that was always there. Yeah. By, by visualizing the data, you can see that, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize we were saying yes to twice as much work as we could possibly do. And so yeah. that, I've, you know, I've, I have a similar story, which is when we did this for one business area, visualize the system of work, switch the light, effectively switch the light on so you can actually see what's happening. And, and that was the case. This, this business division was saying yes to twice as much work as it could possibly produce. And as right. soon as we actually were able to visualize that, it was like, oh, well, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, let's, where's, where's the constraint? Where's the bottleneck? Let's alleviate the bottleneck. We're going to stop saying yes to twice as much work as we can possibly do. We're going to stop having role-based SLAs, trying to like, local optimization, trying to get one role to do something in one day that can't possibly be done in one day, leading to lower quality. Um, completely agree. And actually just reflecting across industry sectors, across organizations, um, this is a very common uh, area for improvement is, yeah. is most organizations don't have enough data on the system of work. And it can be on behavior as well. It can be on engagement, happiness, psychological safety. Um, this is so important because this is your feedback loop. And I think, Nick, as you as you will have experienced, some people are motivated by storytelling and some people are motivated by just show me the hard data. And, and I love what you said, where you said this actually gives the teams a vehicle to have a conversation, which is, look, we're just doing feature development. We're not doing any continuous improvement, for example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I mean, some of what I mean, you talked about twice as much work. I think, I mean, I heard something the other day saying, I think one of our teams was, you know, is doing 10 or 12 work items per cycle. And there are 100 new items hitting the backlog every cycle. I mean, it's crazy. There's like, there's, there's almost 10 times the demand of the capacity. And, you know, I think when we also started with these teams, you know, we spent, you know, you look at the, the aging whip charts and you had so many like old items that had been out there for hundreds of days. So, you know, some teams, they spent probably six or nine months just, just getting rid of all those super aged items to get the, you know, to get the kind of system of work stable that generally, you know, you were starting items, you were finishing them, and you start to build a more stable system. And, you know, you really build that that baseline for, you know, for, for, for going forward at that point. So, yeah, it's been it's been really, I, I feel it's been really transformational for many teams. And, and as I say, we're starting to spread it out, um, you know, more and more and more now. And, and I hope it will continue to, to create an impact. So I think there's a, there's a key learning here, there's a key takeaway here, which is it's important to have a, a data work stream for ways of working, to be able to shine a light, visualize the system of work. Because if this was physical manufacturing, we would see the inventory stacked up on the factory floor. But because it's knowledge work, we can't see it. 
Um, so I think that's a key takeaway. That's a key learning. And and also simulations and exercises. You mentioned the Kanban game. Maybe that was Get Kanban. Um, yeah, it was. And, yeah, it was that one. And, uh, uh, and portfolio simulations. The simulations are a great way to to experience flow. And likewise, I've seen the light bulbs go on above people's heads when you actually do it in a simulation exercise, as opposed to like a classroom yeah. and the theory. Um, and this is something I've, you know, I've done this with, with like C-suite. It doesn't take much. It doesn't yeah. take much. Yeah. It doesn't take much. Within, within an hour or two, you can really, really like have those, oh, wow, kind of moments. Exactly. And I've, I've done a session like this with a, an Exco and it was with Lego and it was like, you know, building things with Lego and uh, loads of light bulb moments, loads of aha moments. Um, oh, Nick, I want to come, I want to come back to your second lesson, uh, your second biggest learning, which is project to product, value streams, long live products. Um, I'm interested to hear a bit more on this topic. So, um, yeah. how did you go from role based silos, work passing, sequential, you know, kind of uh, first industrial revolution way of working to long lived teams, value streams. Maybe if you could just say a little bit about the journey, about how you got there, your, you know, your advice for anyone who's on the beginning of this journey, how to okay. get there and also funding, uh, like may, maybe talk a bit about the funding as well. Um, we'd love to hear more. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think it really just started around a conversation of, you know, I mean, I think you know, for anyone who works in, you know, most big organisation banks, particularly, you know, work in annual funding cycles. Um, you know, ours certainly does. Um, I'm sure most banks do. And, you know, I think prior to prior to this shift, you know, the, the, there was so much management time spent trying to understand what projects we were going to do in the next um, cycle. And, you know, there would be these enormous spreadsheets of things and, you know, like maybe semi-fabricated business cases, but so much of the stuff you found was a continuation of something we'd started in a previous year that had rolled over and we needed to carry on investing it. And, you know, I think through conversation, we just got to the point where, um, you know, like we, we agreed, and I, look, I think our, our rebuild um, under the Barclays divestment helped this because, you know, we really transformed our landscape and, we, you know, we, we had um, probably a clearer set of value streams or products that we were building in value streams. Um, and maybe the estate, the strategic or end state estate became a lot clearer as a consequence of that work. But, you know, it was really just a conversation with, um, you know, the teams that manage the annual funding cycles to say, we're still spending, well, for a start, we this is, we call it strategic investment, capital funding, project funding. We spend a huge amount of um, you know, the organization's resources on this, but a lot of it is the same stuff every year. Our businesses are the same. Like we're a bank, we still do FX, we still sell cash management products, we still do trade finance, we still do working capital, we still do equities. And actually the systems that support those value streams or those products that our customers consume are largely the same every year. You know, either occasionally there's a big project where you really want to rip a vendor out and do something different. But actually, having built a lot of the technology ourselves through the divestment, we found we were just investing more and more, um, you know, in these in these products and these systems that we we built under the Barclays separation. So, 
you know, I think, and that was the, really the trigger for the conversation. I think it wasn't, people just understood that, that actually, you know, we still needed to invest in these platforms every year. They were core pieces of technology that underpinned our business. And, you know, the really, the, the, the debate should be around, you know, where do we direct the most funding, like which value streams or which areas of the business need, uh, you know, is there a particular opportunity potentially need more funding in a cycle um, but they all need some funding and they all need stable teams around them. And most of these, you know, most of these platforms are going to be things that are going to be with us for the next 10 years. And, you know, I think there was an understanding as well, you know, in the business that, that technology, you know, the way technology is now, it's not, it's not implement a system, run it, sweat it for 15 years, it's end of life, you know, new project, let's buy something else. Like, you know, when you start to build a lot more of your own technology, this is just a continuous cycle of regeneration and reinvestment, you know, and you know, slowly iterating and refactoring pieces of it. You, you move away from those big cliff events and those big bang sort of waterfall projects. And I think, you know, I think the business understood that in the context of what we were building as part of the divestment. So it was a pretty easy conversation. And I would say generally, you know, projects for us, what I would call real projects have become the exception in our, you know, in our in our sort of annual book of work. And you know, 80% plus of our strategic investment goes into the things that we want to carry on building, which are the core technology assets that sit behind our business that our customers use every day. And yes, we do get some regulatory projects, or we still we still have some vendor systems in certain parts of our businesses that you know might need replacing over time. But those those are very much the exceptions and the edge cases. I think the fund the funding conversation is still um or the funding is probably still viewed on an annual basis and you know i think changing that is probably a you know a, a, a you know the next iteration i don't know if we'll ever get there i think that's a much more difficult thinking in a bank but you know we're very much at the, at the place where um you know the investment conversation is much much simpler than it used to be a few years ago we understand that this is our these are our core technology assets that need continuing investment um, you know, from one year to the next. Do you, and and do you find that you're now doing more rolling wave type planning? So, so whilst you know, any public listed company is going to have an annual process, you have to. And do you find that it's easier to do rolling wave planning with a view that effectively, you know, whether it is capacity funding or or it's virtually capacity funding, do you find you, that you're able to do more kind of twelve month rolling wave planning? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's exactly. I'm not, I think I don't think all teams have adopted it, but some of the some of the more teams are more teams are, and you have the four quarters, and you roll the four quarters, and mm. you've got you know higher fidelity. What we're doing, you know, at the front of the you know at the front of the plan, obviously lower fidelity at the end, and you keep rolling that forward. And you know, for me, that's where that's definitely where. I mean, it's it's so different building a product yourself to buying a product and customizing it, and you can. You know, if, if we buy a vendor platform and, and we install it and we work with a vendor, it's very hard or it's much harder to apply principles of product development to that and work in those ways. You know, it naturally lends itself more to you know, SLA-based engagement, waterfall. But, you know, we're fortunate now that, that, that a lot of our technology in our bank, we've built ourselves. So we can apply these product development type methods product management type methods to evolving those products. And again, we should, you know, we should just keep investing in them, keeping investing in them where it makes sense. Um, so, so yeah, and, and I think the rolling, the rolling four quarters is, is, you know, exactly an example of that. Great. And in terms of incentives, 
shared goals. So you mentioned embedded technology, getting tech and business even closer together, aligned to value, yeah. aligned to the flow of value. Uh, I presume long-lived multidisciplinary teams, tech and business. Uh, yeah. When you're in the office, physically co-located, I imagine, in terms of like FX trading on the trading floor, for example, um, yeah. I would imagine. Um, a question about shared goals and OKRs. So the the you know that as you said, like the other side of the coin to value streams and long-lived multidisciplinary teams is OKRs, uh, because you need to have a shared goal. Do you, are you finding yeah. that you have that now? Do you have sh like shared goals which apply ac across your role-based speciality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there was there was a bit of a journey here and a bit of a learning as well. So when we, you know, when we started exploring OKRs, I, um, you know, I was I was heavily, I guess, involved in trying to get our organisation to use OKRs at the beginning a few years back, and because of that, I felt it was important to me to have OKRs for my team, um, and we started doing that. But I I, I realised probably within a year or two that actually having technology OKRs and business OKRs was creating a level of conflict. You know, my team would come back to me and say, well, we're working on these things here and you're telling us, or we decided that these things are important, but actually, um, you know, the business is saying this. And I actually stopped, um, you know, stopped doing formal OKR process with most of my teams because we are part of the business, right? We are, we're an embedded business team and actually our goals are the business goals. They're the same. Like we should be understanding and working with the product teams to develop and, and contribute to the business outcomes. And I think, yes, there are always going to be things that we need to do in technology, you know, maybe that don't feed directly into a business outcome. But fundamentally, you know, we want 80% of what we do aligned around the business outcomes. Um, and that was a real learning for me there, actually, you know, like going down the route of creating technology OKRs in a very closely business aligned environment and then realizing they were competing and, and actually you know scrapping those and really get everyone focused behind the business and even things like security i mean cyber and security is so important nowadays and there's so much work coming in but actually the business and you know they all we, we they understand that we have to make our system secure um and 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 that, that delivering secure systems for our customers is a you know really is a ticket to the game when you work at a bank um you know, I mean, the, one of the other things actually in while I'm talking about this piece, John, is we've tried to, um, you know, we've tried, we're trying to work with flow distribution as well. So because, you know, one of, one of the things that, that, again, it's about empowering teams with information so that they can have the right conversations when they go through prioritization conversations. But, you know, I think um, by flow distribution, I mean, I mean, categorizing work into risk work, feature work bugs and tech debt and trying to visualize that, you know, at a team level and a portfolio level. So actually, um, you know, when we're working with product teams and trying to build new features, um, the product team can understand actually what's the real capacity that this team have to build new features because we're spending 20 or 30% of our time on risk work, dealing with cyber stuff, patching stuff, or, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, maybe we haven't dealt with our tech debt for a couple of quarters and we've got to deal this piece. You know, and, and I think visualizing that stuff to really try and elevate the true capacity that exists in teams to build feature work and exposing that stuff, you know, to the product teams and the business is also, 
you know, something we're trying to do and it's working in some teams. And, you know, for me, the next part of our journey is about rolling that up and trying to do that, you know, at scale as well. And that, you know, I think that's something that's also come from, 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 um, you know, the work that Kirsten's done in project to product. And, and we really like that as well. Yeah. And I think, and I think that touches on what you said earlier, which is go slower to go faster. So if you can visualize your flow distribution and you can visualize whether you're doing continuous improvement or not, uh, if you can see you're not doing continuous improvement, you know you're going to have a problem in the future. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, Nick, um, final question, which is um, if if other people could help you, uh, how could they best help you? Do you mean other people inside the organization or outside the organization? Outside, outside, and inside or outside APSA. Um, in terms of a community of learning, um, you know, if others could help you, what would you be most interested yeah. in in learning about from yeah, other, think, other organizations? Look, I think I think the next um, I think the next phase of our kind of you know journey and improvement really, John, is is trying to um, trying to connect all these pieces of data. So we've got um, OKRs. We've got a system with OKRs in. We've got some really great work happening around flow, and we're starting to collect you know data at scale around flow. We've got some happiness measures that we're doing in teams. But you know, I don't. What I don't feel, and we're starting to try to piece this together to tell a combined story. But I I think that's um, you know an area for me where. Um, you know, we can improve and we can get better is, is really starting to bring all these pieces together to tell a combined story and, and really roll up the data at scale. I mean, we've, you know, I mean, I've, there's probably about 1200 people in my organization and there's also, you know, the trading investment park of the bank. So, you know, getting all that, all that data from all those teams to make sense, um, you know, at a roll up level so that it talks to each other and, and, and been able to tell their stories. I think that's, that's something I would love, you know, love to learn more about and see how um, other organisations have tackled. And you know, I think I think you actually covered that in some of your, um, you know, some of your other you know, discussions which you shared with me. So certainly, certainly learn uh, keen to learn more about that. Um, yeah, and then I think the other thing, I think the other thing is, and it's part it's part of what I'm saying, John, is, um, you know, making sure that the work that everyone is doing is really, really connected to. Um, the strategic objectives and business outcomes of the organization. So, you know, there's not, you know, like generally I think technology teams over the world work extremely, extremely hard. It's not a nine to five type job. You know, you're often deploying stuff in the evenings, on call, doing support on the weekends. And, you know, we all work really, really hard. And, you know, one of the things I want to ensure is that all the effort that goes in um, with my teams and with the product teams is really uh, making as much difference as possible to the outcomes that we're chasing and ultimately our strategic objectives. So, you know, how can we get better at connecting the work that's been done in all these teams, you know, up to the broader strategic objectives of the organization, you know, and ultimately the strategy and see how that's moving the dial. And, you know, I think we've got some stuff there, but really connecting that up through the organization is a is an area of growth and improvement for us. And, and those will be the, probably the next things I want to focus on. That's great. And, and any learning I can get from talking to anyone else would be great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Like I said earlier, I could talk to you for hours on this topic. Um, and uh, so good luck with the, you know, the next step in your journey. Um, hopefully we get to have a chat again in, I don't know, six months, 12 months time.
Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you, John. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Nick.